Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every day, hundreds of thousands of us are building a future we can all be proud of. For over 36 years, the growth CBUS My Super Investment option has returned an average of 8.98% per annum for its members, while investing in projects that not only create jobs, but a better future. CBUS, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for another weekend gallop through the history of the game. And what's that sound you can hear in the background of my house here in London, Jeff? It's silence for my daughter, Winifred May Collins, today is in her first day of nursery where we don't have to pick her up after one hour. Her first day of sitting there for the whole day with all the other babies doing their thing um, so she won't Mm -hmm. appear on the backing track. I sometimes like listening back to the podcast as she did on Tuesday, making herself well and truly heard. But a point of difference that she's not here today. I already miss her, but we'll see her soon enough. Hello. Hello. Uh, I I miss it as well because I'm not in the same house. So I don't have to keep hearing it after we finish recording the podcast. It, it has the um, the enjoyment of novelty for me. But look, maybe she should be on the show more. Uh, maybe she should be on on the video shows more as well. You know, she was purely for practical reasons had to be in a few of the videos um, because of the lack of alternative babysitters when we were recording broadcasts from from Brisbane in the Australian summer. But she hasn't been on camera for a while and, and people notice, you know, they want, they demand more 
Winifred content. They do. I think we've got a note in here later today about some demands for further Winifred content. And we still get lots of comments on the YouTube page saying, bring the baby back. Little Vinny, your son Vinny, bring him back. I'm like, I'm not even bothered going to try to correct the record on what her real name is and what her, what her sex is for that matter. But anyway, that's my family and logistical arrangements dealt with. We're still on the hunt for 604 patrons as well, Jeff. I thought we should mention that off the top. If you haven't been following... What did I say? No, we've, we've, 604. 604. 604. I think we're at 604, actually, but we're, we're mm-hmm. near it. We're, we're honing in on, uh, uh, on, on James Anderson's wicket tally. So uh, we have more pledges to go through this week and hopefully more um, pledges to add over the weeks to come as we hopefully reach Jimmy and then he'll overtake us and then we'll overtake him again and it'll be a fun thing that we do hopefully, through the course of 2021. Something we're going to be doing in 2022, Jeff, is we're going to be Daring to Dream. Dare to Dream uh, is the uh, working title for the Final Word Cricket Tour, where we'll be going to Pakistan, to Dare Ishmael Khan Cricket Club, uh, at the very least, and then to Brazil. And we have received so mm. many messages this week uh, of people putting their hand up to come to Pakistan and Brazil with us. I thought I'd mention at the start of that that Matt Featherston, who we had on the weekly show two weeks ago, he's the is he the chief executive of Cricket Brazil, or is the yep. and he's the ICC delegate as well. He's basically mm-hmm. the, the mastermind behind the whole operation. He signed up as our top rate Julio, which as we've got in our patron page, which is just magnificent, by the way. If you stay at that rate for twelve months, we will do whatever it is that you want us to do. Which in this case, Jeff, is mm-hmm. go to Brazil and promote Brazil cricket. So it all ties together quite neatly. Yeah, like within reason, you know, if you ask me to kill a man, uh, I'm not saying I won't. I'm not ruling it out, um, but it depends who it is and what they've done. Uh, so it, it's not it's not carte blanche uh, for, for for that particular task. There are there are certain tasks that may be met with further questioning, but dare to dream. It does occur to me that we should get on the blower to Dara Ishmael Khan at some point because they don't know we're coming. We've just assumed we can go. So we, so we might want to bring them into the conversation at some stage as well. <laughs> but it, it is very nice to have uh, Matt Featherstone on board and we're going to need all the help we can get in Brazil to welcome a, an increasingly large contingent of people who want to be there. Yeah, let me try and capture a few of them. So Phil Rhodes, um, he's a member of the OBO Occasionals. Now, Jeff, we often hear about this when doing the Guardian's live blog that there's a cricket team that plays for them. He sent me their fantastic backstory how it was one email to the OBO saying in 2013, I think it was, saying, I'm in Estonia and I want to find a team of cricketers to play against my club. Mm. And then the OBO assembled a group of 11. So it's not too dissimilar to what we're doing here. Uh, And I've said that Phil must uh, join us in Brazil and he's hoping to do so because what they've done in each subsequent year, the occasionals, is go somewhere that isn't a mainstream cricketing country. So they may not want to come to Pakistan with us, but they might want to jump on the the Brazil leg of the trip next year. Fred Mm -hmm. Cowan, we have one of his nerd pledges coming up today, actually. No, actually, we we had it last week. We're going to confirm that we were correct, but he wants to be our kit man. I know he bowls some leg spin, so we might get him to look after the bats and also uh, beat the outside edge with his leggies. Brian R. Kane has been back on the tools this week. Jeff, our friend from America, umpiring in the USA in New York, Mm. I think he lives. Uh, He thought he had a bannerman on his hands when he was umpiring on the weekend, but... 
he can officiate. He can be our um, the umpire that we bring on tour. Yeah, yeah. Probably, presumably, each team needs to provide an umpire in that sort of context. Yeah, uh, or maybe rotating umpires. We, we we could have more than two umpires. We could have a range of umpires through the day. There, I'm sure there'll be some local Brazilian umpires <laughs> who'll be keen to get the opportunity to pop the finger up. And Brian's also a wicket keeper. He's like six foot six and wicket keeps, so he might have to do both roles. Hello, <laughs> Vagish Mohan. Now, this is the other bit of Winnie chat we had on on Patreon DMs this week. He listened to 14 episodes in a row of The Final Word, and after doing so, <laughs> he sent me a screenshot of, uh, of, of, uh, of Spotify saying that he'd had a Final Word marathon. And at the end of that, he oh, says... Geesh, you tiger for punishment. <laughs> you absolute titan. I'm surprised that he got through 14 in a day because usually 14 of our shows would be more than 24 hours of the, the rate to which we bang on. Maybe some of them were, were daily shows, but uh, well done. Yeah, and, and he says here, can we start a campaign to get a sitcom going of a grown-up Winnie who's trying to help a washed-up Uncle Jeff sort his finances out? <laughs> I think it even has the potential to end up as a crime-fighting duo. So, uh, Vagish Mohan also Vagish. said he, he wants to be involved next year in Brazil and Pakistan so he can meet Winnie then and meet you as well. That doesn't need to be a sitcom. You just need to wait about 18 years and you can do a documentary. <laughs> Uh, we have a trumpet player, Adam Jones, uh, has put his hand up f- for that role. He can he can hold a tune. He's not a professional trumpet player. He's not James mm-hmm. Morrison, uh, but he but he can uh, play the instrument. Jeff Price wants to come along as our auditor to keep track of the support staff. James Tiernan wants us to start help us start selling merchandise to fund the trip. He says, "Why wouldn't a Dera Ishmael Khan one day shirt?" Pay off. I'm like, well, funny you say that. Watch this space. If you want, there is a great idea. That <laughs> that shirt had not that. You know, you mean like the 1992 style retro World Cup shirt, but it's Derek Ishmael Khan. I think so. Or maybe we our own mm. design, but either way that we make some merch for them uh, and wear it potentially uh, when we're there. Mm-hmm. Doc Matthew Jones uh, informs us that Derek Ishmael Khan is 6,029 kilometres away from Jeff and 10,897 kilometres away from me here in London. He's happy to help any which way Other he way can. Around. Other way around, is it? Sorry. So, uh, yeah. oh, well, you can, you can, you get the drift. And he goes yeah. on to add you that. You played uh, up the sandwiches. So you'll get there first. So, <laughs> just, just get things ready for my grand entrance. He works as a politics and governance lecturer. So, maybe that can be part of the balance in terms of the support staff. Lara Killick has the, the spirit of the final word coursing through this piece of correspondence. I can strap on the pads if I need to. I played a bit at uni and coached in the UK, New Zealand, and Australia before moving to the States, but would much rather come company the team as one of the highly unnecessary support staff. I can offer my services as the team doctor, although not a medical doctor, but a doctor of rhetorical mm-hmm. bullshit, given my doctorate is a PhD in the sociology of sport. <laughs> and failing that, I can be the travelling cocktail maker, the resident ethnographer who documents the tour for research purposes, or the social secretary. Hell, I'll even be the kit man. Well, we've already got Fred Cowan putting his hand up for that, Lara. Well... I feel it's important that that we've got Lara Killick uh, and Matthew Jones as two doctors, two two PhD <laughs> type doctors, two non medical doctors, um, so that we can have two doctors who can't help us when anybody gets injured. But you know, maybe they could be a sort of local liaison point. You know, make sure that they're doing the research on the different places we're going, and you know, making sure that all cultural sensitivities are met and so forth. Sounds good to me. And here's the thing: everyone's on the trip, so if you want to uh, get in touch with us and, and join the fun in 2022. 
DMs, emails, Twitter, you know where to find us. And out of all those people, there are several options I could nominate as a CBUS super performer of the weekend. But I, I think for the work seeing into the future, it's going to go to Vagish Mohan this weekend. Our CBUS super performer, CBUS, uh, of course, make sure that all profits go to members, not to shareholders. Uh, you can go to cbussuper.com.au slash the final word if seeing us on a superannuation page will make you feel more at home and less intimidated about sorting out your super. You can download at PDS at the website and remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Uh, in our other segment, before we go through a bit of Nerd Pledge, Jeff, Hickswatch. We, we didn't really have Hickswatch last week because the grand final was postponed, but mm-hmm. uh, in the New South Wales or the Sydney grade comp, sorry, for the women, they have had their decider and Jody did play and it was, well, shall we say, in keeping with the old Jody. Yes, some parts of this worked out. So John O'Halen is our Hickswatch correspondent who was sent through this missive to tell us that Bankstown Oval was bathed in sunshine, got some cricket in. Jody's team, Sydney, had Northern District 7 for 130 after 45 overs. Jody Hicks, brilliant in the field with her ground fielding. Plenty of practice for the Sixers earlier in the, well, late last year, actually. It's um, a long time ago now. But Northern District's banged on 43 in the last five overs. They posted seven for 173. Jody Hicks didn't get a bowl. Picked up uh, wickets the other week. Should have had a bowl. Might have helped. The scene was set. Naomi McDonald and Kate Barry got Sydney off to a perfect start. None for 42. McDonald's bowled. Who walks in at first drop? The position of Bradman, the position of Ponting, the position of Hicks for Sydney first drop. But sadly, it didn't quite go her way. It wasn't first ball, but she got onto one, nailed her second ball, full toss out towards mid-wicket and was brilliantly caught and uh, was out for naught. And that, that rocked Sydney. They couldn't recover from that. They lost wickets regularly thereafter and were bowled out for 97 and, and that's what can happen when when so much faith is, is put in one player, when you have such a, a brilliant player upholding your team, being the spine of your team, that maybe the shock of losing Jodie Hicks early uh, just couldn't be recovered from. So Lauren Smith took three for 16 off 10 overs for Northern Districts and they claimed the Premier Cricket first grade title. Well done to them. And uh, John O'Halen will be back next summer with Hicks Watch. Thank you, John O. So Brazil, tick. Pakistan, tick. Jodie Hicks, tick. I reckon it's time to tell some stories, Jeff. With a little bit of... uh a little bit of something, a little bit of, a little bit of this, a little bit of nerd pledge, nerd pledge, the game of a thousand uses. Oh yeah, name two. It's a game we play with people on our patron page. They support the show by sending us an amount of currency, but it's not a regular amount. It's a very distinct amount, a, a, a very specific amount, and it relates to cricket. The number, in some way, relates to cricket, but we don't know how. They know how. But that's the game. We have to work out what it means. The first of these numbers comes in from the United Kingdom, presumably, because it comes in the currency of Great British Pounds, five of them and one Great British Penny. So that's 501. That could mean 501, 5.01, 50.1. Who knows what it might mean? It comes in from Mark Henderson. And, uh, well, two things spring to mind, one being that 501 is the name of the uh, the number of the original genes, the Levi's 501s, and another being that I think it's Viv Richards' 
batting average, 50.1. I would hazard a guess off the top of my head. But Adam has had a deeper look at 501. I'm surprised, Jeff, that you didn't immediately jump to Brian Lara's 501, given the amount of time you spent looking back at that innings recently. So that's the first Mm. place one would go. But knowing Mark, and we've corresponded a fair bit, of course, Mark's daughter, Anna, bowls those glorious leg breaks, which featured on Sky Cricket last year during the test broadcast. Looking forward to seeing some Mm -hmm. more videos of her work through the season. I reckon it'll be a bit more sophisticated than simply Lara's 501 back in 1994, Mm -hmm. as I see Jeff put a pen in his hair through the Zoom screen. Don't know how you manage that, but that probably says more about how long it's been since you've had a haircut. No, I've been able to do this for years. I, I could, you, you, I can hold at least half a dozen pens. You just I stick them in there for safekeeping because I know there'll be one when I rummage around to dig it out. Unfortunately, it's not one of the uh, episodes that we're filming at the moment. Maybe you do it again on the weekly show. Anyway, so I'm going to go back 110 years. 110 years. So the ashes of 1911-12. England's magnificent and famous win under your friend and mine, Johnny Won't Hit Today, Douglas, J-W-H-T, Douglas. He wasn't going to be the captain on that tour, by the way. Plum Warner, it was his gig, but uh, he got crook at the start of the tour and, and Johnny Douglas got called in to lead the team. And there's a game that involves so many final word favourites and relates to 501, I couldn't help but bring it up and talk a bit more about 1911-12. So Australia win the first test at Sydney, Comfortably, Trumper makes 100. But that's where it really ends for the home side. No other Australian player uh, made 100 through the four test matches that followed. And they got pumped by England. Uh, And in the third test at Adelaide, uh, they really sort of stamped their authority on things. They bowled out Australia for 133 in their first innings with Frank Foster jagging five for spit. Really tough name, that. I'm Frank Foster. What of it? Frank Foster. I like it. Yeah, real, real kind of... 1970s um, Australian feature film kind of areas for that one. Maybe played by... Brian Brown. John Mellion. Oh, it's got to be Brian. Alliterative. The alliterative thing. Brian Um, Brown playing Frank Foster. Or Bill... uh, Bill Hunter. I've forgotten his name. Bill Hunter. Yeah, just... Just absolutely vacated my head from it. Maybe Bill Hunter could play a Frank Foster. G'day, Frank Foster. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. You know, the Muriel's dad could have been called Frank Foster. Uh, so England go huge in response to the 133. They make 501, the number in question. One of uh-huh. Jack Hobbs's three centuries in the series. He makes 187, opening the batting with another fave, Wilfred Rhodes. They put on 147 for the first wicket. Later in the series at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, they added 323 for the the first wicket, which remains the highest opening partnership at our home ground. Frank Foster made 71 down the list, so a great all-round game after his five-wicket haul. Along with Sid Barnes, Foster and Barnes took 66 of the 95 Australian wickets uh, in that successful series. I thought I'd just note for the record that um, Ranji Horden uh, bowled for Australia in that series and bowled really well, took I think 32 wickets. He was the the main shining light. That's a story we need to tell another time. Uh, I'm not going to do it today, but Ranji Horden, Mm -hmm. I'm marking a place. We'll we'll come back to that on on a future week of the show. Was was the Horden Pavilion named after him where they always used to have those those big music festivals in Sydney? They used to have like Livid and so on at the Horden Pavilion. Not only that, I've seen so many gigs there over the years. I saw block parties uh, what was it? It was the 10-year anniversary of Silent Alarm there back in, well, must have been 2005, 2006, something like mm. that. So, But yes. Uh, a real particular I, sound block party. They, it's, it's very much of an era sort of sound. It's a, it's a transport you in time sound. No oh, one's had the sound as, since and no <laughs> one had the sound before. Yeah, as they say on Instagram, take me back to 2005. Anyway, 
I always liked the fact that it was 2005 too, by the way. The, the, the 2005 Ashes were happening at the same time that Block Party were exploding with Silent Alarm. Anyway, Australia fight back. They make 476 in the third innings of the game. And Clem makes 98, Jeff, in that run of scores. That's part of the 97, 98, 99 when he just can't quite get over the line. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when he has the, um, the, the, the prelude to the Wattos. Yes. Yes, so Clem Hill. Another one of our favourite boys. Um, Sid Barnes picks up five wickets in that uh, in that beginnings for Australia. It leaves England 109 to win. They do so three wickets down with Wilfred Rhodes there at the end, the opening bat champion. 57 not out as England go 2-1 up in the series. They eventually win 4-1. It's the last time they win in Australia until 1928-29 when, of course, they thump Australia 4-1 a second time. But between times, just after the war, of course, in, in 1920-21, Johnny won't hit today. Douglas is the captain for a second Australian tour. And what a contrast. The first time he's there leading the team in 1911-12, they win 4-1. And the second time, obviously, a very depleted England team uh, following the First World War, they lose 5-0 to the big ships team. So, yes, he had his highs and, and lows uh, leading that English team in Australia. But one of the best and most comprehensive victories was in Adelaide uh, in 11-12, uh, where they made 501 in their first innings. Jeff? It's interesting that you point out the two bowlers taking 66 wickets out of 95 in, in such a dominant series. It underlines for me again just how remarkable that achievement was in the 2013-14 whitewash that the yeah. Australian team took all 100 wickets yeah, in, in yeah. a five-test series, you know, something that's so difficult to achieve. You know, there's always an innings that's not completed. You know, there's always a, some rain or a draw somewhere or a declaration or whatever it is like, to play that many test matches and bowl a team out 10 times in the series is, is pretty remarkable. So that's 501, Mark Henderson, or uh, I'm sure as some people have called you at times, Hendo. I, I hope you don't think I'm being too familiar. Uh, our next number comes in from Abalash Singh, a friend of the show. $2.58 the number, and two five eight initially has to get an honourable mention for the, the most prominent two five eight in the, the recent imagination, certainly, which is the batting innings that belongs to Benjamin Stokes, uh, Cape Town. January 2016, when he went absolutely feral, brought up his 200 in 163 balls. <laughs> so I remember there being quite a fuss when, when Gilchrist got that double 100 in, what was it, 212 or 215 mm, balls. Mm. Uh, it was, you know, it was slower than a runner ball, but was still the fastest double for a long time. Then Nathan Astle beat it. A couple of months later, um, but Ben Stokes, you know, obliterated the um, the Botham record for England of a two hundred and twenty ball uh, double century. So yeah, the fastest for England, um, and and very nearly beat Astle's ridiculous double hundred that was against England. The fastest two hundred and fifty in Test matches, which is, I mean, that's a real sort of competitive ribbon record, isn't it? The two hundred and fifty. What a waste of time the two fifty. Like these, my cricket opinions that people don't agree with. One, don't don't raise your bat on one fifty and two fifty. Like piss off. Go really? make two hundred or three hundred. Like come, I think that's bullshit. I oh. think one hundred and fifty. So what? I'm you not made 150, you. good on you. When Justin I'd, Langer... I'd wave the bat at 160, 178, like, come on. But were, you there, were you there that or, day that Langer made back. his 250 at Melbourne? I, I expect you probably were. Yeah, I was, yeah. That was a proper standing ovation moment. I don't know why, but I feel mm. as though 250, just because of where it fits right, I mean, at half a 500, I don't know. It feels like it's noteworthy. More than 150 is anyway. It's not a stat. There's no column for 250s. 
You know, there's no. You talk about who's made double hundreds and who's made triple hundreds. Martin Crow was upset because he made a double and not a triple. It didn't matter that it was two ninety nine. It still wasn't a triple. So, I think your first fifty, fine. Have a little bat raise for fifty. Good on you. That fifty is a good effort. But one fifty, nah. Keep going. Two fifty, nah. You got bigger fish to fry. This and if could, anyone raises their bat at three fifty, get out of here. This could um, this could morph into a segment. I think Jeff's odd cricket opinions. <laughs> Whenever I hear of Ben Stokes doing something brilliant on the cricket field these days, I'm always thinking of Nasser saying, you cannot do that, Ben Stokes, from the catch in the 2019 World Cup to uh, get the party started there. Well, it might have been helpful for Ben Stokes if he'd had a few more people around him saying, you cannot do that at other times. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, he did hit 11 sixes in that innings, which is pretty exciting stuff. And, and he was just battering it along with Bess, though. They, they like um, batting together the fastest 300 partnership. Anyway. That was my thought for 258, but I imagine you've got something a little bit deeper. Yeah, time for me to get the party started on the final word. Yes, after a week off, Chesney is back on story time. When I was uh, playing the podcast a couple of weeks ago, in fact, uh, the story uh, about Chesney Hawks being delivered, uh, and I had it on the background and my partner, Rach, said to me, we used to see Chesney all the time as kids growing up because he, he lived in Reading and Rach grew up in Newbury, which is, I think, about half an hour away, and he was just kind of a, you know, mm. a man about town. So she's been in the same post office as Chesney Hawks as a younger girl. Wow. So, you know, that's something. But... We do have a DOB, uh, and, and one of the best we've had, I reckon, uh, on the segment, and it's the 258th Englishman to play Test cricket, Harry Ginger Lee, and he meets the criteria in so many different ways. Let me tell you his story. He was born in Marlebone, so there was very little doubt he'd end up as a Middlesex player. Working-class kid, he joined the ground staff at Lords in 1906 as a 16-year-old, not as a player, but purely sort of working on the turf and five years later as a 21 year old he actually got himself an opportunity to play for the club but until the first world war he really didn't land a blow he, he was middling at best was middling sex rarely in the team uh and then when war was declared in in 1914 he finally got an opportunity just kind of in the in-between bit between war being declared and the season ending he made his maiden century so before he himself enlists in, in 1914 and goes off to war in 1915. He has himself a century for Middlesex. And that really probably should have been it when you hear the story of what happened to him at war. So in March 1915, just after he went over to France, he was involved in the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle and he got shot. Grandfather of Ian Chapelle. <laughs> and Greg as well, funnily enough. And he, mm. uh, yeah, he got shot almost straight away. And then he laid in no man's land for three days. He was presumed dead. They held a memorial service and then it became apparent that the Germans collected him off the battlefield, took him back and they repatriated him. They sent him back to England. I'm not quite sure how that works, that if you captured a, a soldier uh, on the other side of the line that you would, you'd send them back. But remarkably, that, that's what happened for uh, our man, Harry Lee. So 
ended the war, 1919, cricket is back, and that's when he starts to flourish as a player for Middlesex, albeit with a dodgy leg. I mean, he, he was badly injured from the war, but um, what he did at the top of the order, it wasn't pretty, but it was super effective. For 13 seasons in a row, uh, he made in excess of 1,000 runs, really taking uh, full advantage of the second chance in life, I suppose. In 1920, he was one of four Middlesex players uh, to make a century against Sussex at Lords off the top. So one, two, three, four. And he was the first in that sequence. And he repeated mm-hmm. that achievement three years later uh, where the top four all made tons. And only two men have done it twice. And he's one of those two men uh, to be in that category. Anyway, I'll move on. He, he wasn't, as I say, he wasn't a particularly pretty player, which in the eyes of some held him back from uh, receiving national honours at the time. Although when you look at his numbers, I mean, he was making a thousand runs a season, but usually averaging in the high 20s or, or low 30s. He used to coach in South Africa in the off-season, though, and that's where his test match eventually came. In the uh, winter of 1930-31, Percy Chapman's team were down in South Africa, and they were battling with illness. So they asked Harry Lee to join them, to join the party, because he was coaching at a local school. So he did. Hmm. A couple of weeks later, he's playing in the fourth test match of the series, and he goes on to make 18-1 and in a drawn game. And it was all a bit scrappy after that. So the MCC refused to give him a cap and a blazer for his contribution to the test match because it was alleged that he had broken his contract with the school he was coaching at um, to play in this test match. And that was considered to be dishonourable behaviour, breaking his contract with the school. And, and I like the, the next bit, which is that Jack Hobbs, who was a fellow professional, of course, um, he didn't much like that. So he gave him his MCC tie as a memento of his contribution on that tour. So he returns to England and there's one sort of final quirk in his career per the Crick Info obituary, or I suppose it was probably the wisdom obituary that appears on Crick Info. In 1931, so after his test match, he and his two brothers, Frank and Jack, all made first class tons in the same season in England. That's the first time that had happened, where three brothers have made tons in the same year. Uh, unfortunately, to stick with the military theme, I suppose, um, Jack died uh, during the D-Day uh, landings in, in 1944, his younger brother. Harry's career at Middlesex ended in 1934 when he was 44 years of age. All up, he made 20,007 runs. So he just got over that threshold, made 37 centuries and took 390 wickets, most of those after the war with that dodgy leg. He went on to be the second oldest living Englishman Uh, to play test cricket when he passed away in 1981 at age 90. The oldest at the time was our man Andy Sandham, who made the first triple hundred in test cricket. And I suppose that's nearly seven decades, 65 plus years after he he nearly died. So uh, a life well lived both inside the game and outside of it as well, Jeff. Harry Ginger Lee, Adam's dusty old bastard for this week. And he would have been pretty dusty after lying in no man's land for three days. Jesus Christ. Um, right. So was he shot in the leg? Do you, were you able to calculate yeah, that? Do you know I, where the... I don't know, actually. Because it just said that his leg was badly affected. What I was reading was, was talking about his leg being affected. So I assume that's where he was shot. Mm. But it was more the fact that he was incapacitated and couldn't move. So that's why they thought he died. And, yeah, went on to... If that's 1915 and he goes on to live until 1981. So, yeah, 66 years. Uh, 76 or 66? 66 years. Uh, Don't ask me to do that. Uh, and, uh, and a great many first-class hundreds and, and a test match. And one test match and the MCC was horrible to him. They, they really liked doing that back then, didn't they? They were quite a nice organisation now, but um, first half of the 20th century. Yeah, and this actually came up yesterday in, in a really moving piece that Mike Atherton wrote in The Times. He, he told me this story last year, actually, and I had a look at the honours board at Lords. When you're in um, yeah, one of the staircases there, there's 
all mm. of the all of the MCC members who died in the First and Second World War, which tallies about six hundred of, and then there's another board which has, I think it's thirteen names on it, and that right. second board didn't exist until a couple of years ago. And the backstory is, is that those who'd represented the MCC but weren't members of the MCC, in other words, professionals, not amateurs, mm. didn't get recognised in the MCC war dead. And um, Athers happened upon uh, the story of, of one of these one of these men, and the family asked him why um, his name wasn't on that honours board at Lords. And Athers worked out it was because of that amateur professional divide. And right. he lobbied the MCC, who in the end made this new board. And, and one of the players on it is Headley Verity, who of course was a, a great professional who, who passed away in wow. 1943 in action in Italy. Uh, and um, yeah, he was one of the 13. MCC reps, but not MCC members, uh, who died in the First mm. and Second World Wars, and uh, and Athers was writing another piece about Headley Verity yesterday, which reminded me to go back and read what he had contributed a few years ago. So yeah, that that divide between, I suppose, those who are in and outside of the MCC materialised in all sorts of ways. Very good, thank you, Adam. Uh, new number, next new number. It's $3.85. It comes in from Ethan Morgan. And I'm not sure if this was actually a new number because because Ethan's had a few numbers over a long period of mm. time and had 385 ages and ages ago, so long ago that it came up on the show that we did in London with Andrew Sampson in 2019 in that Ashes World Cup summer. And we talked about Bert Sutcliffe and Martin Love and uh, Australia's total in the... 2013 Perth Ashes Test Match mm, and so mm. on. And Ethan had a couple of other numbers since, but has had resubscribed with this old number. <laughs> um, so I, I assume he was just, you know, popping it back in with the number he'd had at the start. But I thought, well, he's back. He's got a number. He's back in POG form. Why don't I find another 385 for Ethan Morgan? So here we are. I'm going to talk to you about Bhagwath Chandrasekhar, Ooh. who for a long time was India's second highest wicket taker. Um, he and Bishan Beatty both went past Vinu Mankad uh, when they played together in the 60s and, and 70s. And Chandrasekhar was a leg spinner who famously had a... Uh, we just talked about a guy with a dodgy leg. He had a dodgy arm. He, he'd had polio, and um, which they invented a vaccine for, and now polio doesn't exist anymore. Crazy how that works, isn't it? Um, yeah, just, just mentioning that, apropos of nothing. Uh, vaccines pretty good it it left him with a really ruined right arm but he somehow managed to make that arm work for him as a leg spin bowler and bowled with a really fast arm action and people couldn't pick his variations so he took a stack of wickets he played 58 test matches one of those bowlers who who has a mirror test match where he has the same analysis in in both innings where he picked up uh, six for 52 both innings against Australia at the MCG. That was the first test India had won in Australia. Had a match at the Oval against England where he got six for 38 and a run out to set up India's first series win in England. Took eight for 79 the next year against England in Delhi. So, you know, esteemed test player as a leg spinner. Only ever played one solitary one-day international. Didn't play in an era when they were playing a lot. He was done by 1979, but you know, nonetheless, um, didn't get other opportunities. And that, that was in Auckland in 1976, I think, something like that. Final word fave, Glenn Turner, was playing for the Kiwis, top scored with 52, low-scoring game. It must have been reduced for rain or something because it was a 35-over match. Right. Um, very sort of modern areas, which meant... 
there was actually some attacking batting. You know, there were some players going at almost a runner ball. There was Mark Burgess going absolutely ballistic for the Kiwis with 38 from 31. <laughs> More runs than Bulls face. What was going on? So Chandra got the opener, Jock Edwards, for 30-odd. Then he got Mark Burgess, who was doing all that attacking. And then he got Dick Hadley and finished up with three for 36 from his seven overs. Um, and even though India didn't chase it, he was 11 not out batting at number 11. So contributed with bat and ball and never played again, never played another one-day international. So he ends his ODI career with one game played, those figures of three for 36 from his seven overs, which should mean that he conceded five and a half-ish and over, but they were eight ball overs. So that means 56 balls, which is 9.33 standard six ball overs. Divide his 36 runs by that and he conceded 3.85 <laughs> runs per over in ODI cricket, as well as averaging 12 runs per wicket and never got another game. Bhagwath Chandrasekhar, what a legend. Uh, that's for Ethan. I was really wondering where that was going to end. I'm like, well, I've heard nothing relating to 385 here. How's he going to, <laughs> how's he going to pull this all together? Uh, thank you, Ethan Morgan, for sticking fat with us for a long period of time now. And thank you, Jeff, for running us through the career of the great Chandy. Next up, 352, a revisit from Pat McKeon, our Scottish correspondent. He says, a suitably niche number. I've continued in the theme of Scottish cricket, and he puts in brackets cricket errs, with a dose of dusty old bastards added for good measure. Jeff, this one for you as well, I think. Well, 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 Patrick McKeon, who made the fatal error of telling me that my Scottish accent was not that bad, which means he's absolutely guaranteed that every time he comes up, so will this terrible accent return. <laughs> people who are not Scottish might think it's quite accurate, but people who are will know better. Nonetheless, the dustiest Scottish cricketer I could, I could find, I'll, I'll say off the top, I haven't solved this. I, I don't... I don't know where the 352 fits, but in terms of, I, I thought for this to qualify, to be a dusty old bastard, strictly speaking, you need to have played test cricket, mm. but not much of it. It doesn't have to be one or two tests, could be five or six or seven or eight. Sure. But, you know, you're, you're from an early era, you haven't played much test cricket, you're an uncelebrated name. So I was looking for Scottish cricketers who also played for England, and one of them was fantastically named Gregor McGregor. <laughs> Just <laughs> as if to emphasise, I'd like everybody to know when they're looking up lists in the future that I was Scottish without having to do a lot of research. I was like, I think this man might have been Scottish. Gregor McGregor. Did he come from the north? He, he, he did. He, he, played, he played footy with Donald McDonald. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, the 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 chair of the the ABC um, <laughs> for those who no who don't no know. no no um, very much the North Melbourne player Donald McDonald not not um you're thinking of uh, Ronald oh was that Ronald McDonald Ronald McDonald yeah, that's right Ra- yes Ronald McDonald anyway Ronald McDonald also a wee bit of Scots <laughs> ancestry you would suspect he was not the clown who worked for the hamburger chain <laughs> it's a different man. <laughs> Yeah, so so Gregor McGregor managed to play eight tests in the 1890s, three Ashes series, including a visit to Australia. Uh, specialist bat, never bowled, eight test matches for a return of 96 runs <laughs> and a high score of 31 and somehow got involved in three test series. Don't know how. Then there was Alec Kennedy, who was born in Edinburgh, um, played 677 first-class matches, mostly for Lancashire, I think. And and was a was a seam bowler. Took two thousand eight hundred and seventy four wickets. Only got five Test matches. Uh, would fit as a dob in that sort of 
case, but there's no three five two sequences linked to him at all. Nor for Ian Peebles, who was a leg spinner from Aberdeen, who you know, we talked about people getting a gig in South Africa unexpectedly. He toured South Africa in 1927 as the secretary to the captain. <laughs> Not as a player, but they really liked his leg spin in the nets and so he ended up in some tour matches and then he played four tests. <laughs> Happy days for uh, a bit like Korean uh, Peebles. A bit like assistant to the general manager, Gareth Keenan, becoming the boss when David Brent gets sacked. <laughs> Gareth, Gareth Evans. So, yeah, he, he played a few more tests as well in Australia uh, against Australia, including a couple against Australia in 1930 where... He got smacked around for a bit, uh, took three for 150 in one match, six for 204 in another, um, one innings apiece because they lost both by an innings, I think, or maybe one was a draw, but he only bowled once in each match. Um, But he did get out in those matches. Don Bradman, Stan McCabe, Bill Ponsford, Bill Woodfull, Alan Kippax and Clary Grimmett. So, you know, must have been doing something all right. But none of those have any relation to 3.52 or 35.2 or 3.52 that I can find. So um, I think this is a handball into the crowd in the first mm-hmm. instance. If you can link 3.52 to a dusty old Scottish cricketer, it may not have to be a test player, but that was the the... the frame of reference I put on it um, or otherwise Patrick McKeon jump in the DMs and give us a little suggestion thank you Patrick thank you Jeff that accent is striking it's good it hurts me to say it but it's good next up Cameron Allen uh, who is uh, who's who's gone clueless which uh, on that basis uh, I've can, can I, can I tell you a story again. real quickly before we before we move on please you know, in, in 2013 that I travelled around to a lot of test matches with Cameron Fink doing, um, yep. you know, filming videos and so forth. At one stage, between between the matches at Manchester and Durham, we we had three days and so we decided to take a rental car and drive up to Edinburgh for the, uh, the Fringe Festival and stop in for a day. And I was doing this accent on the like the entire drive from Manchester up through the Lake Districts up onto Ed. It was probably about a six and a half hour drive. And at, at about the five and a half hour mark, Cam, who is a very tolerant man, um, <laughs> just just turned to me on the motorway and said, I'm going to need you to stop doing the accent. <laughs> <laughs> With the most serious face I've ever seen. It's like, all right, <laughs> for you, because I've never seen you <laughs> this close to being upset before, but I think you're about to be. I will stop. Yeah, the accent stops so we drive off the road. Okay, so Cameron Allen, 170, no clue. Um, there's been 15 instances of 170 being made in international cricket all by men, but one really stands out, another um, game that goes back a fair way. Because it was W.G. Grace at the Oval to whitewash the touring Australians in 1886. Three zips, that was the third of three test matches. He made 170 in 270 minutes after facing the first ball of the test match, sort of keeping Giffen and Spofforth at bay. Uh, England made 434 after batting for 304.1 overs, Jeff, albeit um, overs of the four delivery variety uh, in that era. In reply, Australia all out 68. 
which George Lohman, uh, 7 for 36 from 30.2 overs. Nice. Uh, following on, Australia were all out for 149. George Lohman doing it again, 5 for 68. Going back to WG, though, who got, who got it all started with his 170. He only made two centuries in Test cricket. 124 all up in first-class cricket, so 122 of them were outside of the Test arena. He made a century uh, on debut in 1880. Indeed, the first century made for England in Test cricket was WG Grace uh, in a Test match against Australia where he made 152. I bet he waved at 150. I bet he waved <laughs> like a bastard to everybody. Yeah, check it out, 150. Look at me. But how about this, though? From 1886, when this second tonne comes, until 1899, when he finally gives away Test cricket as captain at age 51. So 13 years, he doesn't make 100. His highest score in Test cricket between his his second and final Test century and giving it away was an unbeaten 75. So yeah, they're fairly modest figures when taken in totality, 22 Test matches for 1,098 runs at 32. Uh, And yeah, two centuries, five other scores over 50, of course, I mean, first-class level. Um, his story is well-known. 44 seasons, 54,000 runs. He played from 1865 until 1908. And when he eventually died in... It's like Queen Victoria yeah, <laughs> being on the throne. I mean, it really is. I mean, he, he really is. And then he, he died at age 67, just seven years after his career finished in, in 1915 of a heart attack. And it's said to have shook the nation before he was buried in, in Beckenham. But, yeah, Cam Allen, uh, uh, 15 times a player's made 170, but I reckon, yeah, the WG Grace instance is the one that means the most. Mm, okay. Well, Cameron, you can let us know. Drop us a DM if that's not right. Ilya Andrews, friend of the show. Hey. And what a friend. Uh, $7.27, the pledge, the clue from Ilya, it is another person who helped me fall in love with the game although in person rather than from the stands or off the TV. Coincidentally, he had a similar role many years prior with Graham Yellop. Hmm. Yeah, so I, well, I sent Ilya a subsequent message and before doing so, just put 7 for 27, maybe Frank Tyson. He took 7 for 27 once and, of course, he went on to live and and, uh, and coach and commentate in Australia. And, Jeff, you took the baton and ran with it from there. Yeah, well, I... Uh, I it rang a bell this one because um, yeah, Typhoon Tyson blew out pretty quickly, played 18 tests because his body couldn't keep doing it, but then moved to Australia some years later um, and ended up as a school headmaster in the 60s and spent some of his time as the, I think, primary school cricket coach of Graham Yellop um, at quite a young age. And uh, so I found an, an interview with Graham Yellop where he said that Tyson helped me enormously with bowling and batting. In those days, I was more a bowler than a batsman and he turned me around. He worked with me for quite a few years to get me up to speed. He was a great man. He was very strict, but he was very knowledgeable. So Frank Tyson went on to become the first coach of Victoria, got a couple of shield wins yep. in a, a long stint doing that job, did some coaching in India and in between times did a lot of club coaching in Melbourne and then later in retirement on the Gold Coast into the early 2000s, which I'm guessing would be the place where he must have crossed over with and influenced a young Ilya Andrews. Brilliant. Thank you, Ilya. Let us know whether we've got it right for your 727. Drop us a line in the usual way. I didn't actually know about the Victoria bit. That was the bit that I found in researching that. I didn't realise Frank Tyson coached Victoria or that he was the inventor of coaching in Victoria, I suppose. Yeah, and that would have been the time when there was a lot of scepticism about um, what a coach was good for, right? So it wouldn't have been a particularly Mm. easy job, but certainly had that 
uh, well, he was held in such high esteem, wasn't he? He, he? He's the man who signs off the broadcast from the centenary test match uh, in 1977 mm. at the MCG. So I, I don't remember the exact passage. You know what? Better still, let's drop it in. Here's Frank Tyson's closing comments from the centenary test. When someone asks me 10 years from now what my memories are of the centenary test match, I will say that it was a combination of a thrilling match, a royal pageant, and a stroll down memory lane. The game itself was almost an exact replica of the first game ever played between England and Australia on this historic Melbourne ground with England losing again by 45 runs as they did in 1877. A lot of old England players will be going home disappointed yet thrilled to the very marrow at seeing such a great spectacle, reviving old friendships with colleagues and opponents alike. This, I think, has been the Olympic Games of cricket. Uh, Jeff, our last new number today isn't a number we expected to be doing. It's 410 from Bernie Prins. Now, Jeff, as we've talked about in the past uh, many times, really, uh, we don't change the order. The numbers come in. Uh, when you send it through, you go in a list and, and so on. But I received this note from Bernie uh, during the week in the DMs, and I thought uh, we should um, have a look at it today. Uh, 410, uh, in honour of Torquil McKillop. He lost his battle with mental health, age 33. A great friend for 29 years. My number is 205 not out, opening for Talangatta, but he was twice that good. So $4.10 is the pledge. A shout out to all who are suffering mental health demons. Rest in peace, talk. And I um, went back and had a look at the innings to which he's referring to uh, in November 2014 for Talangata Cricket Club. It was the weekend after Philip Hughes passed away. He became just the seventh player in the Albury-Wodonga top division to score a double century. Uh, he went on to, to carry his bat. And the club said at the time, after such a distracted week for all cricketers with Philip Hughes's tragic death, to show the focus and resolve in building an unbeaten double century is an amazing effort. Uh, Bernie, all of the thoughts of, of the Final Word community uh, are with the Tallangatta Cricket Club and, and beloved mates of Torquem McKillop, such as Bernie Prince. It's a pretty poignant link to have that connection between between Philip Hughes and Torquil McKillop. And it's not something we would want to be talking about on the show. Um, you know, of course, we, we want to pay respects, but we don't want to have... We, we don't want to need to talk about people who've uh, battled with mental health problems and, and haven't been able to get through it. But it, it is something that we talk about on the show a fair bit and I know there are plenty of people listening who've had their own struggles and, and particularly over the last year or so, which has uh, just compounded it. So, you know, try to try to be kind to people around you, try to be patient and, you know, there's no... There's no single fix, you know. One conversation's going to fix everything. Are you okay? Day sort of stuff. It's it's not as easy as that. Um, it's it's a lot more uh, baked in and, and ongoing in the lives of the people who deal with it. So, um, if if you are one of those people, we're thinking of you. And, and if you're not, try to be patient where you can. Let's leave it there and take a break on the final word. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with some revisits, some confirmations and some correspondence. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, it's April. So it's that time of year again on the cricketing calendar. It's wisdom season. Uh, the good book is out uh, for 2021. 
on the 15th of April. We're looking forward to having a conversation with Lawrence Booth, uh, the editor, for the third year in succession in a couple of weeks. But um, we also uh, want to tell you all about uh, the fantastic opportunity to get hold of uh, the Bible of Cricket at a reduced rate. It's going to be a, a, a special edition of the book because it'll be smaller, purely on account of the fact that there was so little cricket played uh, in 2020. There are fewer pages, far fewer pages, but much as it was in, in 1919, for example, these smaller wisdoms end up having quite a significant value to them as collector's items. But in the short term, there's a different way the book's been set up this year. There's far more writing than what you would normally get compared to the scores and the minutia in, in the back. A lot of it focuses on Black Lives Matter and a lot of it, of course, focuses uh, on the way that, that COVID-19 influenced the cricket season. So uh, there's going to be more essays and more brilliant writing than ever before and a good opportunity at this stage to, if you're in the UK, become a subscriber and get it better than a 50% discount. Or if you're in Australia or the US, pre-order it also at a big discount. Do you want to explain that for us? Okay. I'm going to walk you through how this works. There are three different things that could happen. You you might be in Australia, you might be in the US, or you might be in the UK. These are the only contingencies I have answers for. If you're somewhere <laughs> else, I'm not sure. Um, DM us, we'll try to work it out. Definitely. But you can get a 30% discount on the cover price in Australia or in the US using an order code. The order code is WM30. That will be in the show notes, so you don't need to remember that, as will be a URL, which is wisdomalmanac.com slash 2021. If you go there and you're in one of those, ordering it to one of those countries, you'll get 30% off, which is a pretty fat discount, um, considering that you know, the Almanac's a bit of an investment. That's a decent slab off the price. You have to do that before the publication dates in those relevant countries. So that's 15th of June for the US and the 3rd of August in Australia. Um, but that means you've got a little bit of time, but not too much time to put in those orders. If you are in the UK, uh, you can get what may even be a sweeter deal. You can subscribe to the Wisden Almanac and get it for 25 quid, mm. or you can buy it one single copy direct for 35 quid. So that sells in the shops for 55 pounds. So you can get 20 or 30 pounds off if you're in the UK, depending what you do, or 30% on the relevant price in other currencies in other countries. So that's US and Australia. You use the code. Uh, if you're in the UK, you do the subscription. All of the stuff will be in the show notes. The gist, the upshot is you can get a really expensive book for much less money. <laughs> yes. And it will be a good book with good things in it. All right? Look, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I don't expect me to remember any more than that. No, this is the key thing, right? So the Wisdom Almanac, if you're not familiar, and you certainly will be after the next few weeks, I reckon, is such a magnificent publication. I'm looking at about... 40 of them on my shelf in front of me at the moment. And this year, as I said off the top, it's a, it's a special year of the book. A lot of people have been thinking about the Wisdom Almanac for months. How's it going to look? Well, we know Stuart Broad's on the cover wearing a face mask. So immediately the tone is different to what you might expect. Uh, we'll have a lot more on the Wisdom Almanac with Lawrence Booth in a couple of weeks. But between times, if you're in the UK, that subscription offer, 25 quid a year, a book that costs 55. And now, as opposed to last year, when we, when we came on the show last year and talked about the Almanac, it was just about the UK. Now, we're in Australia and now in the US you get access to this 30% discount. Uh, it's out in Australia in August, out in the US in June. Uh, get yourself a copy of the Almanac, wisdomalmanac.com forward slash 2021. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. 
Final word story time. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Time for some revisits. The first of which, Jeff, is from Joel Burton. We looked at Lance Gibbs's 309 test wickets for his 309. He mm-hmm. wrote to us and said, Hi both. In reply to my nerd pledge story, you are very close with Lance Gibbs someone in proximity to him on that list. However, this is a number that is out of place with the way cricket is played these days, with it bearing as much resemblance to cricket as Sesame Street. And I think that was uh, doing a fair bit of heavy lifting in that clue, Jeff. Sesame Street. Hmm. Big bird. Hmm. Well, who's close on the list of test wickets? To Lancelot Gibbs with uh, 309. Well, Joel Garner took 259. That's pretty close. Sure is. And if we're talking about things that are different now, uh, things that used to be different then, we talked about Bhagwath Chandrasekhar playing uh, one-day international cricket and going at 3.85 and over, which was pretty expensive in those days. You know who went at even less than that across a much longer ODI career? Joel Garner went at 3.09 runs per over. That's the lowest, the most economical of any bowler in the official ODI bowling pantheon, that is bowlers who have delivered more than 1,000 deliveries in one-day cricket. I'd love to look up who delivered 999. There must be somebody. (laughs) I'll do that after the show. That's how I spend my time. So, yeah, 3.09, the best ever. Um, Next best, Maxi Walker. Oh, Tangles. um, With 3.25 and over. He just snuck in 1,006 balls. So, yeah, I'll I'll go from four figures down to three in the um, qualification search and see what comes up. But, uh, yeah, 98 ODIs for Ghana, 146 wickets at 18.84. He's got one of the best averages ever too. Ryan Harris sneaks in there with the 1,000 balls. So he averages about 18, mm. 18.9 or something like that in one-day international cricket. And he's the ICC's top-rated ODI bowler of all time, Joel Garner. Uh, 940 points retrospectively. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what I'm going for, for um, Sesame Street 309. Yeah, that'll be a top rank that he has forever. So number two was Richard Hadley with 923. Number 10 is Michael Holding on 875. And there's no bowler who currently plays in the top 10. So it's safe to assume that Joel Garner will go down as the greatest ODI bowler as far as the rankings are concerned. In terms of current players, I mean, you're looking at historically Maxi Walker being the next best in terms of economy rate. The current best of active players is an Irish player, uh, the Irish off-spinner, Simi Singh. He's bowled uh, 1,015 deliveries, so just qualifying, and his economy rate is 3.90. He played some uh, one-dayers in the UAE recently to move him over that 1,000-ball mark. So there he is. And, uh, yeah, for a long time, Ghana was the only bowler with 100-plus one-day wickets with a sub-20 average until Rashid Khan came along. So Rashid Khan is currently ahead of him uh, with 140 one-day wickets at 18.57, so edging him with Ghana's average up at 18.84. But I suspect that'll be one we watch over the years with Rashid Khan and Joel Ghana bouncing back and forth between first and second uh, for best ODI average for bowlers with more than 100 wickets. Jeff, you can start a spreadsheet. I love that. Oh, thank you very much for all of those. When you've got parameters, when it's like it has to have this context and this mm. context and this context. <laughs> Our revisit for John Leather, a.k.a. Hypercost, $1.71. Obviously, we spoke about Harmanpreet Kaur 
the wonderful 171 she made in the World Cup semi-final. I didn't think that would be John Leather's number because it wasn't obscure enough, but I still wanted to talk about it because when don't I want to talk about it? The number, says John, does relate to women's cricket and did occur in a notable victory against Australia, but wasn't that match. It was probably an extraordinary watch for the few who would have seen it. Yeah, Jeff. normally uh, we go on and tell the story, but for this one, I'm going to actually let the great Hypercourse tell this story in his own words, because during the first lockdown last year, he wrote a long Twitter thread about this very test match. So I think Crick Info put up a question, uh, like a Twitter question, if you can go back and watch one test match for all five days, historically, what would it be? And Hypercourse took a look at a 1984 classic uh, between Australia's women and England at Adelaide Oval. And he, uh, and he documented that so nicely that I'm going to get you to read that out. Why not? Uh, as the words of John Leather run, the sides came into the game having drawn their last seven meetings. England elected to bat and slumped to 91 all out, which remains their lowest total in the first innings of a test. Karen Price took four for 22. By the close, Australia were 84 for one. On day two, Denise Emerson, who we talked about recently on the show, uh, sister of Terry Alderman and uh, married Ross Emerson, the umpire who got up to some things that perhaps he should not have done on the cricket field. Denise Emerson debuted in Perth the week before uh, in her second test, made her first test century. She fell for 121. But it wasn't all Australia's way. They ended up being bowled out for 262. So they were 147 for one at one point, collapsed to 262 all out. Gillian McConway picked up four for 32. Karen Price, after her four wickets in the first innings, made 39, batting at number eight to get that score up. England's openers, Lear and Hodges, got through the last session at 54 for none. So the Australian lead was 117. But England batted all through the third day. Chris Watmo in the final tour of an England career that began in 1968 made her highest score of 70. On the fourth morning, England's 9 and 10 uh, wickets added 17 runs. So they got the total up to 296 and that meant they led by 125. The Australians had never failed in pursuit of such a modest target, but it quickly became a mountain as Avril Starling and Gillian McConway reduced Australia to six for five <laughs> at six runs for five wickets. And then the fight back, Karen Price and Lynn Fulston put on 67 runs for the sixth wicket. Price made 51, got out. Australia was 73 for six, 23 runs for the seventh wicket. Took Australia within 30 runs of the win and then they lost two wickets without scoring so 96 for eight 14 added for the ninth wicket and then it's McConway again who takes the wicket of the Australian captain Thompson and they're 110 for nine they need 16 runs and they have one wicket in hand and in the end it is Matthews nine off 53 balls caught Edney bold Starling Starling completes her first test five for Australia get bowled out for 120. England have won by five runs. It remains the second narrowest margin of runs victory in a women's test. And the reason that 171 is the number is that is still the record first innings deficit successfully overturned in women's test matches. And it didn't help England in the end because Australia won two of the last three tests and won the series outright for the second 
time. But 171 is the deficit they overturned for John Lever. You're a gem, uh, hypercourse, uh, one of our favourites and hoping at some point through the course of the English summer we'll get a chance to uh, sit with him and enjoy his company at a cricket ground somewhere. Matthew Jones next up, 113, a revisit. It wasn't Roy Park, dusty old bastard. It wasn't Mike Atherton against the Windies in 1995 at uh, was it Nottingham from memory, Jeff, that you went through? I looked Sounds at right. 113 test wickets. Uh, four bowlers have taken 113 test wickets. Three of them are Australian. Mike Kasperwitz, Ryan Harris and Bruce Reid. wanted to look at the, the latter two. So in the case of Reid and Harris, they both played 27 test matches and both had injury-riddled careers, but fantastic averages. Harris, 23.52 and Reid, 24.63. Two of the lowest to play for Australia over a longer period of time and take that many wickets. It's um, a different kind of story for Mike Kaspervitz, who was sort of in and out of fashion at different times and played between 1996 and 2006 and really had to work for it. So his average of 33 gives a certain impression, but he earned every single one of those 113 uh, wickets with so many of them taken in the subcontinent. So uh, that was my uh, bid for 113, Jeff. Yeah, not bad. I looked at another link via Michael Atherton in that um, 113 is a score that England have made in Australia three different times in test matches. One was the fourth innings of the SCG draw in 1991 because Atherton made a ton in that test match, so that's where I'd started off. But you go back a long way for the other two. 1879, they made 113 in the first innings and lost heavily. Charles Bannerman was playing in that test match. Didn't do a Bannerman. Made 15 and 15, not out. Very, very neat numbers, but there's always something in the numbers with Bannerman. But nine years later, um, England made 113 in the first innings at the SCG, and this time they won the test. So 113 in the first innings, 137 in their second innings, and they still won by over 100 runs. (laughs) They they bowled out Australia for 42 and 82. Uh, And my favourite thing in this test match is the, the number of bowlers used per innings. So... In the first innings, only three bowlers used. Uh, Terra Turner bowls 50 overs. JJ Ferris bowls 47 overs. And Tom Garrett bowls three overs. <laughs> At the ball for a run, Tom. No, we'll just get 50 out of the first bloke before we throw it to anybody else. 50, 47 and three. Then when England bowl, they only need George Lohman and Bobby Peel. Only two bowlers used. Australia in the third innings used... Terra Turner, JJ Ferris and George McShane for a few overs, so only three. And then England use uh, Lohman, Bobby Peel and get four overs out of George Atwell. So across four innings, 11 bowlers, I mean, they're the same, they're they're not 11 different bowlers, Mm -hmm. but there are 11 instances of a bowler being used, (laughs) which has got to be the fewest for any test match, surely. Yeah, you think so. On on the other side of that, speaking of hypercourse a moment ago, he brought to our attention earlier in the week that, uh, that, that there were seven wicket-takers uh, in the England-India third one-day international. As we're recording, the West Indies have taken eight of Sri Lanka's first innings wickets and they've had six bowlers break through and Rakeem Cornwall isn't one of them. So if Rakeem Cornwall mm. gets in the book with wicket nine or ten, it'll be twice in the space of a week in international cricket where there's been um, seven wicket-takers. So the opposite of this.
Very nice. My favourite thing, I think, though, in the, that 1888 test is that England had a wicketkeeper batting at number 11 whose name was Dick Pilling, which just sounds like a really uncomfortable <laughs> medical condition. You know, like a, <laughs> a bad case of Dick Pilling. It's like, like when you get those things on a woolen jumper, it's like that, but happening downstairs. Yeah. Or there are a range of different ways you could interpret it, I suppose. Maybe taking a Viagra would be Dick Pilling. It's, it's a verb. <laughs> I mean, the act of, you know... <laughs> Walked in on him, dick pilling. But yeah, dick pilling. I was talking about shit batsmen before who <laughs> didn't make much of their eight test matches. 96 runs in eight tests, was it earlier? Yep. Uh, this one, dick pilling played eight tests and made 91 runs. Uh, 14 dismissals in 14 bowling innings. So, oh, wow. you know, only got one dismissal per per trot out. Somehow was a, um, a Wisdom Player of the Year um, in Cricketer of the Year in, in 1891. And the quote from Wisdom was, As a batsman, Pilling has an excellent style and has often done capital work for his county. He averaged nine in first-class <laughs> cricket, <laughs> fellas. Nine. He made two half-centuries in 372 innings. <laughs> Dick Pilling. Oh. Oh, real, real stylish with the bat, Dick Pilling. Great name, great bat. Capital work for his county. I love it. A nice wisdom link through there. Uh, okay, well, hopefully that sealed the deal on Matthew Jones. Next up, Nick O'Connell, 663. We went through Imran Khan, 6 for 63, when they won their first test match in Australia, and Chris Jordan's cap number. It wasn't either of those, said Nick, although my player's test career was also limited to just one international test, and he capitalised limited, he capitalised one, and he capitalised international. And I thought there must mm. be something in that because, um, I can't find anything from 663 and Jeff uh, you you got there yeah well I figured one day international must be what he's hinting at and also limited overs with those capitalizations so it was an ODI stat for someone who played one test match it's almost James Faulkner which I liked who because um, I used to track this very closely um James Faulkner's numbers in run chases in one-day international cricket. So our number is 663. Faulkner averaged 66.5 in one-day run chases and about 20 in the first innings. Was the finisher for a while, genuinely was. Averaged, he averages, I think, from memory, 150-something, 152 or 3 in a winning run chase for Australia. <laughs> Anytime Australia won a run chase, he was there, not out at the end. Didn't raise his bat at the 150, I'm sure, but yeah, over 150, which is bonkers. And just kind of vanished, James Faulkner. Haven't seen him since. So 66.5 is not 66.3, so it can't be that. Charles Langvelt, the South African, saw, I, I always thought of him as an all-rounder, but he doesn't seem to um, have done much with the bat. Average 6.63 in one day cricket and played six tests, not one test. So it can't be that. And then I thought, hang on, who's someone we've had on the show before for their one test match? Callum Ferguson played 30 one day internationals between 09 and 11, won the champions trophy in 2009. Um, basically not required to bat throughout most of that tournament as Watto went bananas um, and, and won the thing on his own. <laughs> but overall, Callum Ferguson in those 30 games made 663 runs, did his knee, missed out for a while, never got back in the team. And five years after his last ODI in Dhaka, he got that one test match at Bell Reeve when he was made the sacrificial lamb for the failings of others. Yes, one of the Hobart Six or whatever it was we called them uh, at the time. Nicely sleuthed, Jeff. Uh, cheers to Nick O'Connell. 
Richard Clark, 614. Um, this might have been another Imran. Yeah, it was. It was when we said <laughs> Imran Khan took six for 14 against India in a one day international in, uh, it was in Sharjah, wasn't it? So back to back six wicket hauls that we got wrong for Imran. We had a bit of a thing going last week, clearly. Uh, Richard Clark ex- explained to us that we were wide of the mark. It's obviously my daughter's career best bowling. And I took a look, and indeed it is. So Emily Clark, who, who plays for Worcestershire, in 2017, took five wickets in and over for the Worcestershire under-15s. The sequence went wicket, wicket, wide, wicket, wicket, dot ball, wicket. So no hat-trick, and was on a hat-trick a couple of times. One of those deliveries was a wide. I suppose if you go wicket, wicket, wide, wicket. Anyway, let's not let's not delve into whether that should... I thought that was a Will Smith song. <laughs> so Herefordshire uh, went from 141 for five to all out for 144, and Worcestershire won by two runs as a result of Emily Clark's extraordinary six for 14 with five of those wickets coming in one over. So... Uh, thank you, Richard Clark, for bringing that to our attention. <laughs> what a run that is! I know, right? There, so, hang on. So, there's it's a dot ball, not a run. So, the the only score from the over is a wide. So, she's come on to bowl with three runs to defend. I and they've got uh, five I, wickets in hand. Yeah, I assume that's the way that it is. It's possible that they bowled them out for one. Forty-four, but no, they they won by two runs. They must have, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah, it can't be a wicket. Yeah, okay, you're spot on. Yeah, she she must have come on with one run she's to come play on with. And they're five down. It's yeah. one. It's one forty-one for five when she's come on, and and they're out. But hang on, how huh. are they out for one forty-four? Where does the where does the third? So okay, so a couple of runs must have been added after the fifth wicket fell. That's how this works. Yes. So they go to one forty-one for five to one forty-one. Then a player one forty-three for players, five. Get a, get a couple of there are a couple of singles or extras or whatever it is in someone else's over, whoever took that fifth wicket probably, and then the start of a next over comes when they're one forty three for five and they need one forty six they need one forty seven to win because it sounds like yep. Worcestershire made one hundred and forty six so they've got they've got four runs to play with they Emily's must need one four six yeah yeah okay so right sh- yeah if they win by two then then she's got three to defend yep. So she starts the over with four to defend. They need four to win when she starts the over. Yep. But yep. That's how this works. Yep. Right. They start, they start the over needing four to win, four to defend. Uh, don't know if it's the last over or not. And then it goes two wickets fall. The wide gets conceded. So now there's only three to defend or two to tie. And then two more wickets, dot ball, last wicket of the innings. That is bloody extraordinary. <laughs> Isn't it just nice work, Emily? Isn't it? Thank you, uh, thank you, Richard, for bringing it to our attention. And our final revisit today is Cam again, seven twenty-three. We looked at Tayfield at Durban in nineteen fifty. That crazy Australia win in the fourth innings, thanks to Neil Harvey or Shane Warne's figures against Pakistan at Brisbane in nineteen ninety-five. Cam said he loved hearing about the exploits of Hugh Tayfield in South Africa and Neil Harvey, and he loved remembering about Shane Warne's demolition job of Pakistan in the nineteen nineties. However. Not his number. It's international bowling figures, but not as we know it, or at least recognise. It's one of the greatest bowlers of all time, pounding one of the greatest teams of all time. Now, 
I made a blue here and uh, I could blame Google or I could blame my attention to detail. I quickly realised it was Dennis Lilly 7 for 23 in a super test and I clicked through on the search terms and ended up looking at a test match at Port of Spain or a super test rather in Port of Spain in March 1979. An incredible match really, so tight with crazy solo efforts all the way through. Bruce Led making 122 out of Australia's 246 with no one in the top six apart from him making it to seven. Uh, then Andy Roberts top scorer with an unbeaten 50 at number eight in the West Indies reply. Then Greg Chappell making 150 out of 282 uh, in the third innings of the match. So nearing Bannerman areas there. And the Windies all out for 274 in pursuit of 299. So it was it was won by 25 runs by the touring Australians. Ian Chappell taking three wickets in the fourth innings. And as I'm going through it, I'm thinking, where's this Dennis Lilly 7 for 23? Not there. It wasn't that test match. It was two months earlier. <laughs> it was two months earlier in another super test at the SCG, Jeff. Uh, uh, I love it. Sometimes Adam's so enthusiastic about an answer. He's just like chasing it like a like a hound. <laughs> I remember watching my my uh, my dog who has has left us uh, pick up the scent of a fox one night and like go belting off after it, and you could hear thump 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 thump, and then just silence. Um, and I was like, hmm. This doesn't sound great. So I went over and found a. The fox had gone through a little gap between a fence post and a gate, and the very large Labrador had tried to go through the same gap, and it just wedged her head in there <laughs> and couldn't move. It was like so embarrassed about it that she just stood very still and very quietly until I came over and had to engineer a way to get her out because she couldn't back out. Well, needless to say, was- I was so deep involved in this. My head is the one wedged in the fence, and you've come and got me out. <laughs> It's the enthusiasm um, cannot cannot be discounted. Um, we we got her out safely in the end. She wasn't hurt. She just felt a bit silly. So yeah, Dennis Lilly seven for twenty three was a, a less close match when he bowled the West Indies out pretty much single handedly for eighty nine at Sydney in another of the Super Tests a couple of months before that return bout in the West Indies. Australia won by 10 wickets. Um, best figures in the Super Tests overall, which still don't count as first-class matches. <laughs> smokers versus non-smokers? <laughs> no. Dennis Lilly, 7 for 23 against the world-conquering West Indies? Oh, that, no, we can't have that in there. No, smokers and non-smokers, that's what we've got. Yeah, Derek Ishmael Khan, yeah, get that in there. Oh, the gentlemen of Philadelphia, whack them in there. Dennis Lilly, no, sorry, not with those shoes, mate. Uh, that's the last of our revisits. A few confirmations, quite a few confirmations. We did okay last week, Jeff. Uh, the first is from Fred yeah. Cowan. His 552 was Graham Hicks 405 in 552 minutes. Uh, insane skills, says Fred. First to Jeff for thinking to look at the minutes and secondly to Adam for narrowing down on me like a detective. I'm very impressed but also scared at how much more you could work out if I gave you further nerd pledges. I'm a Julio pledger forever now. <laughs> so- so because we've, we we know enough about Freddie, he's back to an even number. But thank you for that 552. Seb Goldsmith's 416 was indeed Adam Gilchrist's number of dismissals in test cricket. Seb says, hoping that we wicket keepers are rebranded as dismissal creators forever, um, as suggested by me last week. Uh, I don't necessarily know if I want to be responsible for that. It sounds like something that a, a, some one of those corporate speak people would have come up with. But um, yeah, look, why not? Why not give them more more credit? Let them be dismissal creators. Put it on a shirt. It sounded really good listening back last week when you described 
described it as dismissal creation. So go with it, I say. Mm. Mel Shawley's 508 uh, was Barry Richards' test runs via that link to Bournemouth uh, where he played in various cricket weeks. Mel says that she remembers him as a kid being a class apart uh, and especially watching a John Player League game uh, in the middle of these championship games as it was back then in cricket weeks. A lovely little ground, Dean Park, worth a pilgrimage if you're ever down this way. And Winnie would love the sandy beaches down here. And as I explained to Mel, we probably will end up at Bournemouth at some point because so much uh, of my family history is down there. And uh, we'll go and visit Dean Park and we'll talk about Barry Richards. Brian R. Keynes, 166, he says, Correct, of course it is. The Australian score of 1 for 66, beating the USA by nine wickets at the Champions Trophy in 04. I'm delighted that you used Lawrence Booth's excellent line as the show title. Yeah, we did. That was a good good choice from Adam. And uh, would have loved to see the myriad other 166s you were trying to shoehorn into this game. <laughs> You've now dismissed my opening pair of nerd pledges, but there's a final word favourite coming in at number four. Very interesting. Thank you, Brian, uh, our umpire on Dare to Dream. Mrs. Sorby, her 300, which wasn't a Julio pledge. It was Mark Wars' economy rate in Test cricket when bowling. Uh, she says, well done, Jeff. You got my nerd pledge correct. I loved the extra decimal points. Also, very much enjoyed listening to the Mark Wall love. Thanks, guys. No, thank you, Mrs. Sorby. It's been fantastic corresponding with you. 309 was Rob Richardson, uh, and we were right in deducing that it was Steve James's 309 for Glamorgan in 2000, opening the batting and going for a couple of days. What an innings it was. The first test match I went to was Steve's last test against Sri Lanka. I was thinking you needed some more Welsh cricket on the pod last summer, but I feel it's improved since I made my new pledge. Absolutely, Rob. We've had plenty of uh, Welsh influence in recent weeks. I see that Lancashire isn't going to be playing uh, their away game against Glamorgan at Colwyn Bay, which is a bit disappointing. That would have been a lot of fun, but that's going to be at Cardiff. Next year, maybe, we'll all gather in North Wales and watch some cricket. Even I have started to be able to tell... Glamorgan and Gloucestershire apart. Um, <laughs> it's starting to stick after all this time. Andrew Gilberto uh, writes in to say, Bom dia, Adam Ejef. Uh, Adam has nailed his 4.00 with Aminal Islam and the score of 400 that he took Bangladesh to in their first test match. I was taken with the interview on the greatest season that was. And like you both, I'm pissed off with Cricket Australia's treatment of Bangladesh. My wife and I got tickets to the second quarter final during the 2015 World Cup, India-Bangladesh. Bangladesh were up against it thanks to Rohit Sharma's century. But despite being outnumbered at least 10 to 1 by Indian fans, the supporters were so vocal and enthusiastic. I've had a huge soft spot for their team ever since. Why not? It's Tiger time. It's always Tiger time. Yeah, especially this week, 50 years uh, since uh, their independence last week, Jeff, in Bangladesh. I meant to get out my koala with the Bangladesh women's national top on it from Mm. the merchandise at the T20 World Cup last year, but I, I forgot to do that. I might do it over the weekend. Andrew Turner's 136. I'm... Particularly proud of this one. John Small Sr. It was right. Andrew says that he read somewhere that it was the first first class century, uh, but given the poor records from 250 years ago and our recent discussion uh, around the vagaries, around the status of different innings, it may not be easy to be definitive on the subjects. He goes on to say, I grew up in Clanfield, which is next door to Hambledon. I've always loved that it may be the home of the revolutionary third stump and so much other cricket history. You might be able to arrange a fixture at broad half penny down if when your world 
tour comes off. It is probably one of the more picturesque and potentially accessible former first-class grounds. And the lumpy Stevens 11 also sounds like a good name for a team. I couldn't agree more, Andrew. Uh, I, I, I still can't believe I got that right. That was like one search to a scorecard to another search to another scorecard, all on the back of one little clue about Hampshire and me knowing that Hampshire involved in the first first class game as Hambledon, but you know that all that all tied back through. So uh, I was, yeah, as I say, chuffed with that, and, and I'm sure John Small Senior uh, was as well, making the first first class entry. Yes, not that he knew at the time. It was uh, <laughs> another century that happened somewhere sometime. Uh, the 148 from Duncan Davies was indeed Elisa Healy's uh, record score in T20 international cricket. She did go to Barker College, as did Duncan. Uh, double congratulations, says Duncan, for a secondary correct answer with Peter Taylor, another uh, alumnus of the school. I've got to correct my usage of that because I think we used alumni in the singular last week and I've been pulled up on that since. Peter Taylor as the test selector. Uh, the AFL club captain that I couldn't identify is Jared Witts of the Gold Coast Suns. That scans because I've never heard of Jared Witts or I've barely heard of the Gold Coast Suns. Um, the singer was none other than Peter Garrett of Midnight Oil ah. and uh, for, former MP in, in Adam's government. Yeah, well, it wasn't my government, as in I well, wasn't, government. wasn't a government no, in my yours. name, but it was a government that I yep, certainly worked yours. for yeah. uh, and, uh, and loved working for. Uh, and Peter Garrett was a fine minister. Well, thank you to to Duncan. I'm glad we finally worked it out. And that brings us to the end uh, of the confirmations as well, Jeff, which leaves us only with a few Bannermans here. Now, uh, we're getting a lot of Bannermans at the moment, which means we're going to have to plough through a few in quick succession, but um, keep them coming. Any innings that you spot with the percentage of over 67.35, we want to hear about it. Chris Arkell sent us through a, a non-Bannerman last weekend, Alma Hunt making 100% of the runs, chasing 48, but, of course, they didn't lose 10 wickets. He has another crack this time. He doesn't think it will count as a beer match, but it involves uh, England's cricket captain, Percy Chapman. I think it counts. I don't care that it's a, a beer match. A match is a match is a match. So he goes on to say that Chapman was qualifying to play for Kent and when he was doing so, he works for Hythe Brewery. And he organised a 12-a-side match for them against Elam Division Kent County Police in 1925. Hythe Brewery scored 201, of which Chapman, batting at number four, made 183 and was last out for 201 for 11, because 12 players in the team, so 11 was all out. Only seven runs were scored by the other batsmen. Uh, the number 11 was out for two, and the number 12 was four not out. The extras were 11. Chapman went on to take uh, four wickets, which was pretty unusual for him, given he only took 22 in his entire career of 400 first-class games. And what I've failed to do here, Jeff, is to calculate what is 183 out of 201. I might do that live, shall I? 183 out of 201. That's 91%, 91%, which... I mean, I know it's a game where 12 players were playing and it could be called a beer match, but I don't think we've seen a 91 percenter. So that might be the clubhouse mm. leader, Percy Chapman, who we were talking about earlier in the show. So thank you, Chris Arkell, for that. It's remarkable that I couldn't mentally calculate uh, the percentage of something that was almost exactly 200. Yes. <laughs> so it just needed to be <laughs> that number cut in half. Well done. Real, some real uh, fast work there. John O'Halen, a Jody Hicks correspondent, also found a Bannerman. He says, let us determine whether or not it passes. It's from an under-11s match between Seven Hills RSL <laughs> and Pendle Hill Colts in 2015. Uh, the Seven Hills side 
was being coached by none other than John O'Halen. Uh, Seven Hills only had 10 players on day one, as it was just during the school holidays. Right. Santosh Samuel blasted 77 not out in a team total of 96. So that's 78.57%. While Seven Hills were only nine wickets down, we were all out as only yep. ten players were there. Yeah, no, that counts. You can you don't have to have lost ten wickets. You just have to be all out. You could have players retired, hurt, etc. As we uh, did, as, as Bannerman did, it must be said. I mean, if 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 one, yeah, yeah Bannerman was not was ten wickets in nine out, all out. He retired, retired hurt. Yep. Uh, Santosh is now 16, working his way through the Sydney grade system um, and will be representing Sri Lanka in next week's Thunder Nation Cup hey. out of Blacktown Sports Park. Um, so, well, good stuff. Well, I hope that Santosh is still bannermaning it up. Or more realistically, I hope he has better teammates these days and doesn't have <laughs> Thank you, Jono. Let us know how Santosh goes and our penultimate bannerman out Last real batter, and then we've got something a bit different to finish. Brent Simmons has a couple of beauties. And what I wanted to note before going into them, though, is that uh, it's a beaut of a story how he found us. So Mel Shawley, who we were discussing just before, her pledge of 508, Barry Richards, explained to me that she met Brent in a youth hostel in Adelaide during the 1990-91 Ashes Test match there, which was, of course, Mark Wall's debut when he went on to make a century. And they've been friends ever since. They've been catching up watching Test matches ever since 1990-91, since they happened upon each other in that hostel. And she directed Brent to us on the final word, thinking he would love it. He lives in Japan these days. But he's been in our inbox uh, with a couple of different bannermans. And it all comes from a book he's been reading called Divided country uh, about the broader history of South African cricket uh, and many of the games that the non-white cricketers that, that were played but were probably worth worthy of first-class status. Now, he, he wants to direct our attention to one of those games in November 1936 where Muhammad Idris Yusuf scored 412 out of 462, 89%. In just 185 minutes, 23 sixes and 41 fours. That was playing for the Government Indian Schools Cricket Club against Star Cricket Club. There's not a lot of details on Cricket Archive, but he's accepting that as true. The game was played in Bulawayo, he says, uh, where he was teaching the man in question, Muhammad Idris Yusuf, that is. A local newspaper reported that he shocked the small crowd into a state of wild excitement. They applauded his strokes as, with flashing drives, mighty pulls and sweeps and fine cuts, he hit the ball to the fence. So uh, that's a cracker. And the second one he wanted to uh, put on our radar is an 85 percenter, which is when GTS Stevens made 466 Massive scores out of 548 uh, for Lambda versus Beta at Neeson in 1919. That was a, a house match at the University College School. Brent's also interested in coming to Brazil and Pakistan with us, I should say, in closing. But he's had his head deep in the books uh, looking at scorecards from yesteryear and he's a couple of those massive bannermans a 412 and a 466 89% 85% we love it I do wonder um, how much of the university college school game involves like kegs and whatnot because <laughs> that sounds like that may not have been the, the highest quality ever played and then Adam Jones to close on what we're considering calling the Fanaman. he says 
I've been wondering whether to submit quite a famous match which contained two near examples, but neither side was dismissed. However, given that we discussed super overs recently as to whether they might qualify, Adam would like to widen the scope to other fake Bannermans, which he's suggesting might be called Fanamans. So to Worcester in May 1979... Suffice to say that Somerset realised they would qualify for the quarterfinals of the Benson and Hedges Cup if they lost to Worcester in their final group game without losing a wicket. (laughs) So I'm going to take this to mean that they could also qualify if they won the game, but they could also risk losing the game and thus not qualifying. But if they lost without losing a wicket, they would definitely qualify. Correct. Um, So it was a foolproof plan. So they won the toss and declared at one for none with the one run being scored by Extras. So that's a double fake Bannerman given that Extras was not a named player (laughs) and thus could not actually score a Bannerman. Worcester then went on to chase down the total of two runs to win and in that innings, both of the runs to win were scored by who other than Glenn Turner, (laughs) the holder of the legitimate first-class cricket Bannerman at about 85%, but scored 100% of the runs in this total. Now, that's also not uh, a Bannerman because it's not a completed innings, but he did score 100% of the runs. Uh, The Test and County Cricket Board promptly chucked Somerset out of the competition and the rules were changed so that you couldn't (laughs) declare in one-day cricket. Bizarrely, Adam says, the vote to penalise Somerset was won 17 to 1, with the only vote against being that of Derbyshire, who were due to play Somerset in the quarterfinals and so wanted them to stay in the competition uh, so that Somerset's replacements, Glamorgan, would not be reinstated and Derbyshire (laughs) would get a bye. (laughs) So it's good to see that the shithousery just continued immediately. What do they say? Always back the horse of self-interest? Well, that's what Derbyshire were doing there. Thank you, Adam Jones, for telling us that tale. Uh, We have a couple of notes to finish off what's been a long and enjoyable show. The first of which comes from Vivek Arcot, who wanted to share with us a crazy scorecard where the most runs were scored in any first-class match ever played. Uh, he says that it's a record that that stays until this day. He loves the fact that the run scoring continued through. And just opening it up here, it was Bombay against Maharashtra, uh, and Bombay made 651, <laughs> and then they went on to make 714 for eight declared. So... <laughs> The better part of 1,400 runs in the game. Incredible, really. And of that, Uday Merchant uh, made 143, the brother of VJ Merchant, who we were talking about just a couple of weeks ago. And the response was 407 and 604 in the fourth innings after being set 959 to win. (laughs) So uh, Bombay got the job done in the end by 354 runs. But looking at it here, those four scores, 651, 714, 407 and 604 so that's nearly 2400 runs across the course of six days jeff amazing bit in the track then in that game (laughs) (laughs) doing a bit early yeah some brutal bowling (laughs) figures i mean you talk about the contract i think everyone bowled in that game looking at it here eight or nine bowlers were used in every innings (laughs) Right, so that might be the most versus that test match we were talking about earlier. Exactly. And our last message, a little little message in from Lara Killick. Um, This is is a nice one to finish. If you've come with us this far, we can have someone say nice things about us. 
Uh, I'm sure that you've been getting a ton of messages with this theme, writes Lara, but I wanted to thank you both for being unknown, constant companions and sources of support this last year. Life has not been easy, especially as I live in California, where the politics of the pandemic have been interesting, to say the least, and I've been separated from my family for over a year. Not only do you keep me connected to my first love, cricket, you do so with joy, energy and passion and your support of women's cricket and covering some of the deeper issues in the game. Uh, the interviews with Marcus Stoinis and Butch were a revelation. Butch is an old friend and it was great to hear him recount so many of his stories, wonderful memories of the Surrey dressing room that I was lucky enough to be part of during 15 years that I worked at the Oval. You had me laughing and crying simultaneously. Well, Lara, you had us laughing and crying. So we made you laugh and cry. You make us laugh and cry. It's a, it's the opposite of a vicious circle um, if laughing and crying is good, which I believe they both are at times. Yep, I'm with you, Jeff, and I'm with you as well, Lara, who, as we mentioned at the very top, is going to join us in Brazil and or Pakistan next year. So that might be the right place to leave it. Uh, if you want to get involved with what we're doing on the show here, no better place than patreon.com forward slash the final word where you can submit a nerd pledge and you can help us overtake Jimmy Anderson. Uh, wouldn't that just be wouldn't that just be lovely? Thank you to Seabus Super who have been fine supporters of the final word over the last couple of years. The Wisdom Almanac deal is all in the show notes. Get yourself a, a heavily subsidized copy by becoming a subscriber to the book or um, collecting that offer code if you're in Australia or the USA. Thank you to everybody who's corresponded with us, whether that's on the Patreon page, on social media, in the email. This is a fantastic community. Uh, we're extremely proud of it. It means a lot to us. So as it continues to build and grow, it becomes an even bigger part of our working lives. And that's just a joyous thing. Thank you to Jeff for all your work and the research as we build towards each show each week. Bad Producer Productions, we're on their label and proudly so. See some of their other shows at badproducerproductions.com. I'm Adam Collins. He is Jeff Lemon. Thanks for joining the Final Word Storytime. Can't wait to do it all again next week. You look beautiful. So you know what I meant here. I had to get-